Good morning. It's great to be with you all this morning. I'm excited to be able to be preaching here again. And as my father mentioned, I'll be preaching on the book of Judges. And if you've been following along in our series through the books of the Bible and reading through the first few books of the Old Testament, you've encountered a lot of strange things by now. A talking snake, a talking donkey, people living to be 800 years old, floods, plagues, disasters of all kinds. And not just strange things, not just unusual, miraculous things, but also boring things. Long, detailed building plans for constructing a tabernacle. Lists of dietary rules. And if you went through Joshua the other week, you had chapter after chapter just listing place names and dividing land. And besides the strange things and the boring things, there are also terrible things. There are plagues of all kinds, wars, whole nations being cursed or put to the sword, violence done by both the Israelites and their neighbors. And you may be wondering, why is this in the Bible? What does this have to do with my life? If God wanted to give us a message about what the world is like, what he's like, how we should live, how we can be saved, why did he give us a book that includes building codes, real estate contracts, talking animals, dieting advice, and lots of violence? Wouldn't it make more sense wouldn't it be more straightforward and easier to understand if God were to just tell us directly what he's like, how he wants us to live, and how we can know him? And why can't the miracles be nice miracles of healing and life rather than all the curses and death that we see so often in the Old Testament? But if we go to the start of the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, we'll find exactly what we want. Matthew opens with very nice miracles of Mary conceiving by the Holy Spirit, of an angel warning Joseph not to divorce Mary, of an angel saving the baby Jesus from King Herod. And then we have very easy, direct teachings about God and the world. We have the Sermon on the Mount, where God tells us exactly what he wants us to know. And after that, Jesus goes around healing the sick, casting out demons, giving sight to the blind, and even raising a girl from the dead. This is what we want in the Bible. But how do people respond to it? How do people respond to Jesus' teaching and ministry? Some people believe, some people follow, some become his disciples, but many reject him and doubt him. Some are scared and ask him to leave their town. Others accuse him of hanging around the wrong sort of people and of breaking religious rules by healing on the Sabbath, or by offering forgiveness for sins, which only God can do. When Jesus casts out demons, they say, he did it by the power of the devil. And after he casts out demons, they demand he give them a sign, even though he just cast out a demon. And that brings us to Matthew 13, the scripture which we heard earlier, when the disciples ask Jesus why he started using parables in his teaching. Now, many of us, I think, if we were asked why Jesus teaches in parables, why he tells these stories about shepherds and farmers rather than speaking directly, we would answer to make it more clear, to help us understand. You know, Jesus gives us a practical, real-world example so we know what he's talking about. But Jesus says something quite different. He answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. 
But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. Jesus doesn't say he's doing this to make things easier. He doesn't say the parables will make it easier to understand. He says the opposite. Because people don't understand, because they hear without really hearing, he's going to make it even harder to understand. Whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Jesus had tried being straightforward and easy to understand, but it didn't work for everyone. He tried showing signs, but some still wouldn't believe. So he has to do something else, anything else, to get people's attention so that maybe something will happen and they'll stop being so blind to what's right in front of them. But how do people usually respond to parables, to riddles, to confusion, to something strange? For that, let's listen to the story of Samson from Judges chapter 14. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughter of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all my people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord, that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath and came to the vineyards of Timnath, and behold, a young lion roared against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid, and he had nothing in his hand, but he told not his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. And after a time he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother and he gave them and they did eat. But he told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So his father went down unto the woman and Samson made there a feast for so the used the young men to do. And it came to pass when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said unto them, I will now put forth a riddle unto you. If ye can certainly declare it me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty sheets and thirty change of garments. But if ye cannot declare it me, then ye shall give me thirty sheets and thirty change of garments. And they said unto him, Put forth thy riddle, that we may hear it. And he said unto them, Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not in three days expound the riddle. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they said unto Samson's wife, Entice thy husband, that he may declare unto us the riddle, lest we burn thee and thy father's house with fire. Have ye called us to take that we have? Is it not so? And Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people, and hast not told it me. And he said unto her, Behold, I have not told it my father nor my mother, and shall I tell it thee? And she wept before him the seven days while their feast lasted, and it came to pass on the seventh day that he told her. 
because she lay sore upon him. And she told the riddle to the children of her people. And the men of the city said unto him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than the lion? And he said unto them, If ye had not plowed with my heifer, ye had not found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and slew thirty men of them, and took their spoil, and gave change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle. And his anger was kindled, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, whom he had used as his friend. This is a strange story. <laughs> but it's in there. It's in the Bible, and it's not even the strangest one by far. But since it is a strange story, we do need some context here. The book we looked at last week, Joshua, was about when the nation of Israel, who had been wandering around the desert since they left Egypt in Exodus, finally arrived in the Promised Land and conquered it for themselves. And now, after being led by Moses and then Joshua, Israel is being led by judges as they battle the Philistines for the Promised Land. And the basic lesson, the basic pattern of the book of Judges is that Israel messes up, Israel calls out to God for help, God saves Israel by raising up a judge to lead them, but then Israel forgets about it, the judge makes a mistake, and things just get even worse, and through the whole book, everything just continues getting worse. And Samson is one of these judges who God has raised up, and God is using him to create a conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines, so that Samson will fight against them and help free Israel. And after all, the Philistines were evil. They practiced things like child sacrifice. There was a reason why God wanted to keep the Israelites separate from the Philistines. But at the start of the story, Samson isn't too bothered by that. Samson's not the sort of person to quibble over whether or not somebody's culture practices child sacrifice. No, he's very open. And he sees a pretty girl, and he wants to marry her. He's a true romantic. And then he fights a lion, and he rips it in half. And then he eats bees, honey, out of the lion's carcass. So he, if you were confused, you were right to be confused. It was strange things happening during that scripture. And then he tells a riddle about it. He says, out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not in three days expound the riddle. And when they can't solve the riddle, the Philistines become enraged. They threaten Samson's wife. They threaten to burn down her and her father's house. They aren't nice people, the Philistines. They demand an answer. They need to know the answer to the riddle. You know, confusion, uncertainty, doubt, all these things, they make us miserable. They make us upset. They make us act out and do something. They make us angry. The riddle had gotten under their skin and created a conflict. And in the same way, Jesus, going all the way back to Matthew now, Jesus uses parables to create conflict to confuse the people who had rejected him. And as the gospel story continues, Jesus' teaching in parables, his tricky questions and clever answers that he gives the scribes, they make the conflict worse and worse until finally the high priests decide that they have to kill Jesus. But this is strange too. Why would Jesus want conflict? Why would the person who said, blessed are the peacemakers, be picking a fight? Though it's not how we often think of him, Jesus was a divisive figure. He said, I came not to send peace, but a sword. He drives the money changers out of the temple with a whip. He publicly attacks the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites. 
But all these things only happen after the Pharisees have rejected Jesus. At the beginning, Jesus starts off exactly as we would expect and exactly as we would like him to be. He's kind. He does wonderful miracles. And he has a clear message for us from God about how to live. And it's only after the broken people in the story mess up that things change. The Pharisees were supposed to be experts in the scriptures, which predicted Jesus. But they didn't recognize him. Jesus went around healing the sick. And the Pharisees accused him of working for the devil. If the Pharisees had done their duty as religious leaders, they would have told everyone that Jesus was the Messiah. They would have praised him and his miracles and his teachings. But they fail. So Jesus punishes them by changing from a clear teaching to a confusing one. As he says, but whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. The Pharisees already didn't get it. But now it was going to get even more confusing as a punishment. But we punish people in order to correct them, in order to lead them back to the right path. Punishment is supposed to teach people and help them learn from their mistakes. The Pharisees just didn't get it when Jesus healed people and was direct. So if he was ever going to convert them, if he was ever going to save them, he had to try something else. A confused reaction is better than no reaction. Before God can give us an answer or guidance, he needs our attention. And if we won't listen when God gives a clear sign, like Jesus walking around and performing miracles, he'll try something else. He'll try being confusing and strange and wonderful to get our attention. And we see this throughout the Bible. There's a phrase we hear, signs and wonders. God does signs and wonders in Egypt. The apostles, as they spread the gospel in the book of Acts, do signs and wonders. The phrase shows up 29 times. And it's referring to sort of all the miracles and strange things that these people are able to do. And these are two ways that God speaks to us, signs and wonders. Sometimes he'll give you a sign, as clear as a stop sign or a sign you see on the road, and it'll tell you exactly what to do. We're praying, and then we get a sense. This is what we have to do. We read the Bible, and it tells us exactly what to do. But it's not always like that. Sometimes God speaks through wonders, through things that aren't clear, through something strange and confusing, to get our attention, to get us to pay attention to him. Things will happen in our lives that we can't understand or can't explain. We don't know what it means, but we know something is happening. We see this, for example, in the story of Exodus. First, God gives Pharaoh a sign, a clear message. He sends Moses to Pharaoh, and Moses tells Pharaoh exactly what God wants. Let my people go. And it's only after Pharaoh refuses the clear sign that God sends wonders. Then the river turns to blood. Then there's a plague of frogs and a plague of locusts and a plague of flies and all the other Old Testament stuff. God tries to reach us through something clear, but if it doesn't work, he keeps going. You know, God wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants us to know him, and he gives us clear signs. There are plenty of passages all over the Bible where God is perfectly clear that he loves us and wants to help us. And the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God, that nature, everything around us, every good created thing should point us back to the good creator that made them. The Bible and the world are full of signs. But it says, they seeing, see not, and they hearing, hear not. Neither do they understand. We still don't get it. 
And when we don't get it, when we don't hear, when we don't see, God doesn't give up on us. He sends wonders. He sends strange and confusing things to get our attention and lead us back to him, both in the Bible and in our lives. And every part of the Old Testament that so confuses us today is like that. It's shocking and strange and divisive. But some of the Bible is supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be wonderful and to confuse us because through that confusion, we look deeper and we grow closer to God. We can't really learn anything without first getting a bit confused. It takes time. We have to wrestle with the subject. We have to think things through. The Old Testament is strange so that we draw nearer to God in that confusion, just like the disciples do. They draw near. They ask questions when Jesus teaches in parables. And I see this as a teacher all the time. The students who are really learning, who do well, they ask questions. They make confused faces. They make me repeat things. And the students who don't do well, they sit there nodding and staring. And they're seeing, but they're not seeing. And they're hearing, but they're not hearing. They don't get it. And for every strange story in the Old Testament, for every talking animal and cubit measurement of the curtains in the tabernacle, there's a reason for it. You and I may not see it on the first read or the second read or the hundredth read, but it's there. And people far smarter than us have been studying the Bible for far longer than any of us have been alive. And whatever we may find that seems baffling or contradictory or even wrong, someone else has studied and found an explanation. Still, we shouldn't just be confused with these strange parts of scriptures. So here's three things we can keep in mind to help us when reading the Old Testament. First, as Christians, we believe in a fallen world. We believe that the world is broken and that we human beings are sinful. The evidence is everywhere. So when we read the Bible, we shouldn't be surprised to see lots of evil and wicked and just stupid things happening. Our story about Samson today is violent, but that's because it's part of a larger messed up world where Israel is being violently oppressed by the Philistines who need to be forcibly overthrown. But in the Old Testament, and this is what I think a lot of us have difficulty with, we often see people who have been chosen and blessed by God doing bad things. So second, we need to remember that God works through broken, sinful people. And it's a good thing he does because that's the only kind of people he has out there. And since God chooses to work through us, God's work reflects our flaws. Samson is an angry, impulsive, violent man, but God still uses him. But when God does, we see those flaws come out in his work. And third, we need to connect these strange stories to the larger symbols and the larger themes and messages of the whole Bible. For example, let's look at the lion and the bees in this story. Lions in the Bible are often a symbol of one of the tribes of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe that King David was from. Judah is also Jesus's tribe. We may remember from the Christmas story, it says that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. This is also why Jesus receives that royal title, the son of David, people call him. So when we see a lion, which means Judah, which means David, which means Jesus, when we see a lion being torn and killed, 
that's a foreshadowing of the crucifixion. And when honey shows up in the Bible, in the promised land, which is flowing with milk and honey, or in the Psalms, where the judgments of the Lord are said to be sweeter than honey, than honey in the honeycomb, there, honey is connected with goodness and the promises of God. And so the honey from the dead lion corresponds with how Jesus' death and resurrection fulfilled the promises of God and brought us all kinds of good, sweet things. And just as Samson ate honey from the carcass of the lion, Jesus calls us to eat his body. As Jesus says in John, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The whole seemingly random, bizarre lion attack and beehive story is prefiguring the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we could keep going. Why can't they answer the riddle in three days? What's special about three days? Or why does it matter that Samson is going to a wedding? Or why does it matter that the prize for the riddle is changes of clothes? But the point here isn't just the connection of this particular story, but that the whole Old Testament is like this. That we should expect to see strange things and confusing stories, but that God uses these stories to tell us things we aren't ready to hear directly and to make us draw near to him in our confusion. We don't want to be like the Philistines who are enraged when there is something confusing, who threaten to burn down their, your house when they get confused. And we don't want to be like Samson's wife either, who thinks that just because Samson won't explain himself, that he hates her. If we're confused, if we don't understand what God is doing in our lives or in the Bible or in the world, we shouldn't get angry and we shouldn't assume that God hates us. We should seek God. We should look more to him and to his truth. And this goes again, not just in the Bible, but that in our lives. While there are things in our lives that are clear signs from God, where God has given us a message or delivered us from something, there are also parts of our life that are strange, that we can't make sense of, that make us wonder, why is this part of my life? Just like we wonder why God put these stories into the Old Testament. And just as the Old Testament only fully makes sense in the light of the New Testament, just as the Old Testament was incomplete without Jesus and his death and his resurrection, our lives on earth will not fully make sense until after we die and are resurrected to new life in Christ. Until we see the new heavens and the new earth, we can't fully understand why our fallen earth has to be this way. Even though Jesus has promised us eternal life, if we just believe in him, Jesus did not promise that our life on this earth would be pleasant or painless, or even that it would make sense. And his life on earth, the life we seek to imitate, was hard and confusing, and it didn't make sense while he was alive. It only became clear after his death and resurrection, and the same goes for us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass, 
darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you want to communicate with us, that you want to know us and tell us things and help us and guide us. And Lord, we praise you because you are the God who does wonderful things. And we are in awe of you and marvel at the things you have accomplished. And Lord, that we don't always understand all your works or all your words, Lord, we pray that we would draw near to you. And when we are confused or uncertain or upset or worried about what's going on in our lives and in the world, that we would turn to you, Lord. We would lean on you and seek you and your truth and your guidance. And Lord, give us your spirit that we may have peace and truth through you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.